Hey everyone, it's Jess. You're about to listen to the recording of the live stream that we did for NerdBurgerCon 2. So you're going to notice two things. Number one, we're referring to our chat because we had a live audience. And number two, there were a couple audio glitches in this recording. That's because we had a few more people than usual in our Zoom call where we were recording. I apologize for that, but you're going to enjoy this episode anyway. I know you will. Thanks for listening. Welcome to RPG R&D, but before I begin introducing this, I would like to throw it to Craig to talk about NerdBurgerCon, which is what this live Q&A session of RPG R&D is a part of. NerdBurgerCon 2, second one <laughs> in a row. I'd call that a success, Craig. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's going on right now. Um, it's Saturday evening um, of the Saturday-Sunday convention. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast when it comes out, you missed it. Sorry, um, but there may very well Sorry, be another Ian, one. Sorry, how dare you? There may very, very well be another one next year. Um, but yeah, we decided to do uh, this show a little differently. We're going to uh, ask some of the convention goers what questions they have about GMing or game design. And we're going to uh, talk about all those sites of th- those types of things. Um, as always, I am Craig Campbell. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games and I make RPGs. Uh, Jess, what about you? I also make RPGs, but I am one half of Wannabe Games, so you can find us, you can find our games there, and we are here with our special guest co-host, Litza. Hi, Litza. Hi. Um, I make games and um, often just little short blurbs of games, um, typically nothing longer than 20 or 30 pages. Uh I, but um, usually shorter than that. Um, but yeah, uh, I I also DM occasionally. I don't consider myself anything of a professional, but uh, this sounded super fun, and I I hope to uh, have awesome discussion with you guys. Yeah, about thank you. That come up. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're we're super excited to have you here with this special. Uh, episode and uh, yeah it doesn't matter if you you don't consider yourself a professional because who what is a professional what does that even mean and that's our first that's our first question of the day no it's not but (laughs) um I think we can we can throw it out there for quite there's there's a raise is there a raise hand uh, there is a raise hand feature where's that buried if people want to use that oh uh that's in the participants if you click on the participants menu that's how you do it. Or you can, I guess, go to the chat and say that you want to, you want to have a question. <laughs> so anybody, uh, if anybody wants to chime in, um, you can just start talking, I guess. <laughs> <We'll figure laughs> where, if you can figure out where the raise hand thing is, do that. Um, or you can type something into the chat. This is jamming questions, by yeah, the way. Yeah, jamming questions GMing are first. Mm-hmm. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll start this off. I'm going to grab one of these questions from the subreddit for uh, DMing. And I like this question. It's a, it's, a, it's a very old subreddit that no one ever posts on, but it has some good questions in there. So this question <laughs> is, what are some cool random things to put in a dungeon? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, um, cool random things. 
See, that's romanceable the, that's... NPCs. Actually, <laughs> <There you yeah. laughs> um, either captured or exploring on their own. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's fun. Someone from the audience said a gazebo, which I 100% agree with. Um, I think if I were exploring a dungeon and my GM said there's a gazebo there, I would be very suspicious. That it's- would immediately capture my attention for sure. Yeah, I I feel like <laughs> the more random, the better. Um, though again, it depends on it depends on the genre of your game because you're you're playing to genre and you're playing to aesthetic a lot of times. So a grim dark game is going to have very different things than a high fantasy game. Um, and subverting expectations can be really cool, but in, in limited quantities. Yeah, I, I definitely genre specific. If you are playing a really super serious game, just randomly throwing in a gazebo in your uh, dungeon out of place might be a little off and throw the rest of your players off. But I can definitely see that in a silly type campaign. But also mm. if it's covered in mold and it looks ancient, it could have a place in Grimdark. That's true. It could. I, yeah, I, I don't, I, I like this question a lot because the, I, I feel like sometimes I struggle with certain aspects of DMing, but if I focus on really amping up the aesthetics of a scene, nobody notices Um, So I try doing that so people will remember the, uh, the heavy, like the atmosphere and the feeling and the emotion of it and maybe not notice the weaker points. So like really, I don't know, I guess focusing on your strengths. So people, so your players won't notice your weaknesses. They won't remember. They won't remember that you suck. Here's uh here's something and it requires you to either plan long-term or be prepared to, you know, uh, come up with something down the road and just be open, put, you know, put, put an item in there and I'm going to get, it's going to be fairly non-specific that I'm talking about here, but you know, an item that you give a lot of detail to that there's something, it's like something that's like you wouldn't expect to see in the location, like a dungeon, um, but give it a lot of detail, make it clear that it's, you know, potential unique one of a kind something like that most players will you'll have somebody in the group will decide they're going to grab that take that with them um and then pay that off in like 20 sessions where like somebody says we were searching for this ancient whatever you know and you're like oh yeah i've got that in my bag (laughs) i've been carrying it around for three months um yeah and then and then you know use that to kind of spark off some other thing like well it becomes a uh like, you know, a remember when, remember, remember when we came across that weird thing and like all, all of a sudden it becomes incredibly important. Um, <laughs> That's like because- the corollary to the random NPC that everyone falls in love with, <laughs> but it's just like the random, ooh, pretty shiny rock that becomes important yeah. later. I mean, the one ring has special powers, but that's kind of the one ring is kind of that to the Lord of the Rings. Like Bilbo finds mm-hmm. that thing, takes it home, and then it's years later where it becomes right. incredibly important. Yeah, very, very important. <laughs> Perhaps the most important piece of jewelry <laughs> ever in the world of Middle Earth. Um, we've got a question. Yes. Yeah. And this question is, do you think random roll tables take away from DMing ability to tell a solid story or DM rolling in general? I think they can be very useful 
provided you go over them first or you make them yourself. Um, there are a lot of tables that can definitely take away from a story because they aren't suited for your campaign or what you're, or the kind of story you're trying to tell or because they just don't fit in with the pacing of the story. Um, but if you're looking for specifically looking for random encounters to add in and maybe you go through and cross off all of the options that you don't like, then you can be left with a list that does really work for you. Yeah, I've used random encounter tables quite often, um, particularly like within whatever game I'm playing. Usually it's like a game of D&D because so many people make random encounter tables for that system in particular, although you can adapt them to whatever you want. Uh, but I've used them to just give me a little bit of extra oomph to, to fill in some things, um, to, I don't know, like make a place feel like it's a little bit more solid and real than anything. I think that they're a really good tool. I think they're a really good tool and there's nothing wrong with it. Like you roll something that doesn't really feel good to you in those tables, re-roll it, change it. Or, or do something that I've used with kind of tables of things too, is just rather than rolling the dice again and you know, like the, the players are like, oh, they're rolling again, um, is just pick the one above or below, the one above or below that appeals that like suddenly fits, you know, that way you're not, you're still kind of randoming because you're, you're, you're random rolling to kind of get in that area on the table and you just like, well, this doesn't make sense, but the thing right above it really kind of fits nicely. So just I've pretend you rolled one lower or one higher. Um, and, and, and if your table is, kind of non-specific like you can see like random encounters if it says the uh, bandits attack well that's kind of telling you that they attack but if the, if it says you know you encounter the, the the group encounters bandits yeah. what do they do what are they there to do um you know they might attack they might want to sell you things that they just stole from somebody else they might just want to trade stories around a campfire and tell you about their latest heist you know to some stranger that they can show off to and then you can talk to them as well and there's a lot you can do um the, the less the less specific the encounter is described i think it actually it makes you stretch your storytelling muscles a little bit more because now you're trying to figure out how does it fit in with what's going on in your story like with the with the example of like the random things that you might pick up along the way in an adventure there's no why not make something like that off a random roll table and then you can figure out later or in the moment how how is this important why is this important um, what's going on with this? Why are those bandits attacking and how does it relate to my story? Yeah. Loot tables are super important for me because I have such a hard time thinking of that stuff off the top of my head. Me too. And I know names, a lot of people struggle with too. Yeah. Names. Why not just like make it easier in yourself anyway. There's, <laughs> there's no reason like why, why do we have to feel like we need to invent every single thing in the story? That's hard. It's really hard to do because not only are you inventing all this stuff for your your story and for this this area that your characters that your players are playing in, but you're also playing NPCs and you're also listening to your your players talk and they're all yelling at you and and messing around and lighting things on fire. Use a random roll table. Yeah. Help yourself out. Yeah. In terms of random encounter tables, I do think they should have a purpose. You shouldn't be rolling for no reason. But like Jess said, 
in in terms of filling the world and making it feel real that's a big reason like probably the number one reason I would use a random encounter is to show the players what the world looks like show them a monster or show them even just you see a herd of a certain type of animal going by or you catch something in a trap or you you see or experience something maybe just beautiful or um, poignant that doesn't necessarily need the party to interact with it, but they could if they chose to, um, to demonstrate what the world looks like, the aesthetics of the world, how beautiful or grim or uh, in danger it is to show them sort of their purpose there. And you can also make your own tables too, and then roll off of them as well, which kind of, you know, kind of takes away that uh, question. I've been listening to the Adventure Zone Ethersea, like their new season. And one of the things that the the Dungeon Master did for that was had, they, they roll a random encounter and their first random encounter has now been this weird little urchin creature, uh, spoilers, I guess, on their ship. (laughs) Um, and has been a really fun NPC to listen to and it you know they can they can add a lot to your story um yeah I wouldn't shy away from them personally I like to work smart not hard to speak to the second part of the question is DM is a DM rolling dice um something that prevents the DM from telling us all the story I don't think so at all I mean I think there are games where the you know the rules are player facing and that allows the GM to spend more time focused on kind of just concocting and telling story and laying out challenges and everything. But for a game that where the, uh, where the GM is doing a lot of rolling, that's like, that's a different kind of game. That's a game that's going to have, the GM is going to probably have more surprises um, because they're going to have monsters and bad guys and, you know, with superpowers or cyberware or spells or whatever that um, are, you know, like it's all completely outside of the player's control. They have no idea what's coming. They're going to have to react to things. Um, and the player, you know, the GM has like a lot of choice and it, it can slow combats down if the GM's not prepared, but that's just a matter of just making sure you're kind of up to speed on like, well, there's going to be these encounters and I, I know my lich has all this stuff going on. Be, just kind of be up to speed on what you're going to, what you're going to use so that you're not bogging, um, everything down when it comes around to the bad guy's turn. Here's an interesting question, um, from, from the internet as well. Is it fair to put the party in a situation where there is no right answer or they can't save everyone? Is it fair? Is it fair? If that's the type of game that the group is okay with, absolutely it's fair. That's a good point. Yeah, it definitely depends on the group and what they're okay with and what everyone... I mean, that's that's a situation of kind of reading the room and knowing your players and um, feeling out the situation and you should always sort of be cognizant of the comfort level of your characters and being able to separate whether it's a character that's upset or if it's a player that that's upset. And if you have a player that's upset with a situation, being willing to, um, either sort of pause the game or message them and see what you can do to resolve that situation and um, maybe not even necessarily change the story, but um, make sure that everyone is okay 
with the direction that the story could take, the options that the characters have to to be heroes, to make things okay. Um, and is it a setting where the the player characters want or need to be able to save everyone? Or is it more of a grim, dark setting where people are going to die and people are going to get hurt? Because if you're using fantasy as an escapism and someone's personally in a dark place, that might sort of be mentally taxing for them. So yeah, it definitely depends on the group. It depends on what people are expecting and wanting out of it. Yeah. And I've put my players into situations before where I know they're not going to be able to beat this monster they're not going to be able to beat this bad guy and I, I I sometimes I feel a little bad like I don't want my I never want my players to feel helpless but there are times where I want to tell a story where they are facing insurmountable odds and and I wonder if there is a way to signal to the players without giving everything away that like like you shouldn't be you should run away eventually like you're not going to beat this without saying that without saying you're not going to beat this um i wonder what you two have to say about a situation like that boy that's tough without like just giving without like hanging a lampshade on it Mm -hmm. um i think if like if the group you know agreed that that's going to be the kind of you know like those hard choices moral choices of like like are we gonna are we willing you know like are are the characters willing to let a handful of people, even people, you know, characters that they care about die or suffer or whatever in order, you know, to, for the, for the greater good. Um, if you know that that's something that's there and you know, you're planning to kind of get to it, it could always be something that like, you know, the session before or two sessions before, before you start playing, you remind everybody that, Hey, remember when we, when we all agreed that like that, those types of hard choices and, and difficult situations could be part of this game. Just, just letting you know, I haven't forgotten that. Um, and then, you know, players may be immediately on the lookout that game session for the possibility of something like that. But if you save it until a session or two later, they'll still have it kind of in their heads that like, oh, yeah, that's right. The GM said, remember, <laughs> this could be coming. And now here it is. So that um, like it, it, it becomes like clear. OK, like, you know, there's there's 5000 orcs <laughs> running down the hill toward you. <laughs> this is a runaway moment. Mm-hmm. And some of. Oh. He was in the middle of something really fiery. And now he's going to speak. Yeah. It's going to go. Bleh. Some of the, the NPCs that you are with are not going to. I bet it recorded everything, which is going to be really funny. We missed half of what you said there, Craig, because you glitched out. Lovely. I got, I got the gist <laughs> of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, basically, you know, if you, if you made that agreement with the players is like, you could bring it up a session or two before you're planning to <laughs> institute something like that. Well, that helps to remind the players. Oh yeah. I haven't forgotten about the idea that we might have like these really difficult situations to put the characters in. So, you know, if you save that kind of thing for episode 15, um, people might've forgotten the discussion at the beginning of the campaign, the Mm -hmm. the session zero, like just bring it up every so often and just remind people like this sort of thing can happen. I'm just, I haven't forgotten. So that way, when you do kind of bring it up, it's like a little more in there. I've had a fun instance of that where I was a player in the situation where um, like it was two clashing armies and then our group like met up with them. We didn't realize what was happening and we really desperately wanted to help out. Uh, but our, our GM, um, Alex actually, who's, who's in the call right now, um, 
made it clear through the actions of the other NPCs that this is not a winning fight and you need to leave. And then the environment also started pushing us out um, as well. So those are other things that you could possibly do, I guess. I really had fun with that one because it felt like I was making a terrible choice leaving this battle behind. (laughs) And it was very memorable um, and very descriptive too. Like the description um, that was used was um, very evocative of this desperate type situation. We were Mm -hmm. allowed to fight a little bit. That was fun. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we also weren't completely like blasted out of the sky either, um, which is something you kind of have to walk the line on especially if it's one of your first couple sessions, you don't want to kill your whole party in the first session. (laughs) (laughs) I know something that DMs have done for me is, uh, or for groups that I've been in is call for like an intelligence or an insight check or something similar. Um, if we're uncertain and then if the role is high enough that the players know they're getting an honest answer, be like, yeah, you think you, you're not going to win this one. Yeah. Because then it feels like you're not just being fed information. You earned it through your role. Mm -hmm. So it feels a little more organic that way. And, you know, reiterating repetition can help too. I had a a Deadlands game where the characters went from the Deadlands setting to the hell on earth, futuristic apocalyptic setting. And there was ghost juice, which is basically like super fuel, but also like something that you can take as a drug in very, very small diluted doses. And one of the characters was an addict and decided to imbibe some of that. And he said he was going to, you know, like he described how much he was going to drink. And I was like, that's going to kill him. (laughs) And so I made it clear. I was like, you're, you're drinking poison. (laughs) Like like you realize your character, your character realizes this. They are drinking poison. It's like gasoline and poison mixed together. And he said, yep. And uh, yeah, he okay. died. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, we have, uh, we have a, a question. Yeah. Do you want to read it? Sure. What aspects of GMing do you find most challenging? What strategies do you use to address those things you find challenging? Oh, that's a trick question. <sighs> Jeez, Chris. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is the interview question where like, what's your, what's your greatest weakness, Jess? <laughs> <laughs> That is, it's a really tough question. It's a really important question too. I think the aspect of GMing that I find the most challenging is feeling like I'm giving my players all of the opportunities to show off and be in the spotlight um, and balancing that kind of like interpersonal stuff within the group. Um, That's a challenge for me because I I can kind of get stuck on focusing on one thing a lot um and the like or or like talking to just one player too much and I'm really like extra cognizant of that because I know I can accidentally fall into that focus hole so um I I my only strategy for that um I have like written down check marks of like okay this person has talked in this scene this person has talked in this scene um but really it's just a matter of going around the table, which can feel kind of robotic sometimes. But what I've realized is I've never noticed this when I'm, when I've been a player that my, my GM is going around the table asking, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And role-playing little bits and pieces as they go. Um, Another strategy I use is cutting off a scene at an exciting or pivotal moment, like a cliffhanger, and then going to the next person. So what that helps with is it gives me time to think and react but it also gives them a little bit of time to think and react too. 
biggest challenge I think I have is making sure that I do hit on those little background things that character that players write up for their characters that they that, that they clearly want to see addressed in the game like or at least something from the from the character background i sometimes lose track of that stuff if i don't kind of remind myself constantly that it's there um you know so if somebody writes like you know we've we've joked about like my character's an orphan you know like, like <laughs> so one of their parents has clearly got to be alive still so that we can mess around with that story <laughs> um but like you know that sort of thing is like making sure that i, I bring that to, to bear especially when it's a shorter campaign and you're not going to have quite as much time necessarily to get to some of those things um to to address that um is i have to do one of two things i have to either integrate the the character background thing so heavily so intertwined that like the, my plot falls apart if it's not there like um it has to be that important of a part of the story and and then the other thing is and i this is easier to do in um with online games but i've literally done it where i get a, a post-it note and i get a sharp big sharpie and i write a big thing it's like <laughs> You know, Bob's amulet, and I tape it <laughs> right up above where I'm going to be looking at all your faces, and so make sure that I bring up Bob's amulet at some point because Bob has an amulet that was given to us by his gamma, and he's really it's really important to him. <laughs> I like I I, I want to picture this, Craig, is you writing the same thing in big sharpie on your palm, and every once in a while just looking down like it's. Test, like at a, at a like table test questions yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and i've done it i've done it you know i've done that with my notes and in, in table games and stuff as well where i'll just like i've got my my one page of like just like outline of kind of like stuff that might happen and then i don't bury the thing like in a line in a bullet point i <laughs> write it in big letters i've had players notice it and be like oh so i see bob's amulets coming in play today <laughs> <laughs> Um, for me, I, I really struggle with long campaigns. I, I love one shots and I feel like I'm good at running them and I don't even need a plot necessarily. Like I can throw a bunch of little plots together and just end on a big fight and everyone, and it's great, but for longer campaigns, and maybe this is just an ADHD thing, but I really struggle with like bringing a bunch of threads together in a way that's satisfying and coming up with like a story structure and like a couple of different villains and how they interact and how factions interact and the type of story that I would find satisfying because I, I can't be satisfied with anything less. <laughs> um, and the only thing that I've really found that works for me is using pre-prepared adventures because I just don't have the like mental capacity to plan all of that myself. Like I've, I've run Curse of Straw, not all the way through, except for the like four session speed run that I did once um, that cut out most of the campaign, obviously. Um, but I, I love that. And I, I feel like if I got my hands on another book and managed to read it all the way through, which um, is a feat in and of itself, but I could run a game that was already like set up and prepped. Um, I just, I, I feel like the amount of prep it would take for me to 
put together a solid campaign would just be completely overwhelming. And I'm incredibly impressed with anyone who can actually do that because that's just amazing to me. I don't think I could (laughs) just personally. Yeah. I understand that feeling. It is, it's like a lot of stuff to, to make it feel real, to make it feel like the kind of game that you would want to play and have fun in. Like there's a, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to keep track of. Yeah. At some, at some point it becomes unfun to me. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Do we want a lightning round the last two questions here and then switch to design? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay. Off the top of your head, in one sentence, uh, do you have a go-to thing you emphasize to get people connected to the world quickly? I've got the answer for that. Um, I give them movie scenes. You're in a train mm-hmm. station, like at the end of The Untouchables, and you know, and 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 you know, and then a couple of maybe a couple of sentences to kind of describe what that looks like for somebody who maybe hasn't seen the movie, but for a lot of people, they'll have seen the movie and like, oh, that's like Union Station, and it's real tall, and it's a lot of stonework, and they'll, they'll picture that rather than going into great detail. Yeah, I ask them to tell me something that's in the world and tell me something that's not in the world. Get them to create a little bit. That's cool. That's, that's yeah, good. I like that. Um, and then how about what small change have you made that had a big impact? Um, just in GMing, keeping a list, uh, keeping a list of players and check marking when I talk to them to make sure that everybody's staying involved. I've done that on a number of occasions. Just keep a list, make sure that that person who's real quiet doesn't get forgotten. Just like, okay, everybody's got three check marks except for Bob. I need, I remember I need to talk to him about his amulet. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good, actually. I like that. I know playing other games other than, I know we're not specifically talking about D&D, but um, I started with D&D and playing other games, uh, specifically Powered by the Apocalypse games and the way that they tend to be more collaborative with world building. Um, And then going back to D&D really helped me in terms of uh, inviting the other players to be more proactive in creating the world with me and telling me how the characters act and telling me what happens in the story when maybe I'm out of ideas and knowing that I don't need to make up every single thing. I can be like, well, what do you think is here? What do you think is happening? All right. Uneasy segue. <laughs> do we do any other kind of segue on this show? I don't think we let's do. let's swing it over to game design stuff. Anybody have any questions out there? If one of our co-hosts has something want to throw it on the table for us to talk about while people type in their questions, I'll say uh, what aspect of game like, like we can kind of do similar to the GM question. What what aspect of game design do you find the most difficult, and what is something you've done to help you latch onto doing that? For me, um, it is figuring out what I still need to design in the game to make it a full game. Um, if you, well, you can, if you go on to the one of games discord, there's a link in there with our works in progress. You can see everything that we're working on all of our documents and it is an absolute mess. Um, it, it is, it is a tumble of, um, uh, documents and all of that <laughs> and you can see alex has already asked a question here related to that alex is my partner <laughs> in game design and my partner in in romantic things uh how do you Ooh. keep your game design notes organized please help yes that is <laughs> please help <us. laughs> alex 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 is a romanceable npc um <laughs> uh quick note for me my uh, uh thing that i have the most trouble with is when I write a game where there's going to be a fair amount of setting to write, um, 
I'm great to outline and to kind of figure out like in my head what everything is, mm -hmm. but then sitting down and actually writing the world. Um, like it's, it's hard for me to just sit down and start pumping that stuff out. Um, so the way I typically do this, I try to break it up into small chunks and say, okay, I'm going to write, you know, I've got each, each location is going to get a page. I'm going to write a page today. I'm going to write a page tomorrow. I'm going to, I'm not going to try to sit down and write five, six pages at a time. I'm going to do one page a day for a week. And in that way, I feel like it's manageable and I've gotten finished. And it's like, okay, that one's done. Like, like I don't have to worry about that for another 24 hours. That's a problem for future Craig. I attempt to, well, in terms of organization, all of my stuff is in Google drive. I have them slightly organized by type of game, like mechanically speaking. I have a whole folder of what's so cool about games and wretched and alone games. I've, I've finished like one wretched alone game and I have like 12 in progress. <laughs> will probably never be done. <laughs> and then I have like, I have a PDF folder and then I have a games that I'll probably never finish folder. So yeah, I don't know if I would be any help because <laughs> mine are probably just as bad. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> that I'm terribly helpful with that either. It's like a Word <laughs> document with multiple bullet point lists um, with a lot of ideas and then everything gets color coded. Yeah. Like I highlight stuff. Like when I finish it, I cross it. No, if I'm not going to use it, I cross out. If I finish it, I highlight it red. If it's something that I need to think about, I highlight it blue so that I make sure to notice it and kind of come back to it. And then um, I always have more than I need. Like my, my list of notes for like, I've got designing code warriors right now i've got a list of you know like 40 ideas for locations right now and i'm not going to include 40 it's going to end up with 25 or 30. Um, I've heard so people. i like i like over organizing because then you you can get to the point where you feel like oh i've got enough now and i don't that's great like, if, you, if you give yourself you say you're going to have you know i'm going to i'm going to write up 25 spells so i'm going to outline get, get 25 ideas for spells and then you get to those last two or three and you're like how are these going to work you know like what am i going to make these cool how are how are going to how am i going to make these cool no give you a list of give yourself a idea for 30 spells and just go until you got 25 because the, the ones that you come up with are the ones that you're most interested in and that you probably came up with something yeah good for and then you can just discard those other five i've heard some people work on one game until they're done and then go to the next game i don't believe that I, I, i'm fake. like how <laughs> yeah i have like i don't even want to know how many i have in progress too many but if i don't work and then finish it, it'll just sit for two years and then i'll eventually go back to it it's that adhd brain thing yeah it's really hard for me to like focus my efforts on one thing at a time Cause I, I get really like once, once the, the excitement of uh, doing one of them runs out and then like, Oh, come on. I, I've, I've been doing this for so long. Why isn't it done yet? Can I work on brand new shiny object that I yeah. want to work on right now? I'll hyper-focus and that's really good <laughs> until, until I stop. It's <laughs> Hyper-focusing is really good until it's not. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I've been designing an interactive fiction game. So it's a little bit different than tabletop game design because there's code involved. And I oh. worked for hours straight on this game and days straight on this game um like getting everything in and all these little different design aspects and then i left a lot of errors in the code and then i put it down for like nine months and i went back to it recently because i want to release it soon and yeah it's like what was i what was i doing what is oh, this man. <laughs> that feeling when you have to reread your whole game because you don't remember like where you left off or what any of it was it's yeah too much <laughs> i yeah, i had that exact situation with code warriors because it went through it went through iterations like two years ago 
it was too much and then i suddenly came back to it and i was like oh i don't remember half of what i did (laughs) um let's see what do we got any tools rules or methods for knowing when to turn off feature creep (laughs) define feature creep. yeah i don't actually know is it fair to say you're talking about like options that characters have at their disposal like too much like when is when is when is it too much i'm guessing that's what we're looking at uh alex if you want to chime in and chat and clarify is that what we're is that what we're talking about yes no that and when adding in too many little features to the game yeah oh or getting just just getting too many very you know too many a broad a too broad of a spectrum like well now there's too many things for the players to have to make decisions about or that's a tough question because yeah. it has to, it has to do with how complex do you want the game to be there comes a point where you get a game that gets to the the point of being so complex that it starts to become a, a the game is no longer is not just playing the game, but it's also gaming the game, because there's so much that you can um, select as a player for your character that it you know it, you run the the risk of analysis paralysis and trying to figure out what are the best you know finding combos and trying to pick the right pieces because there's so much to choose from. Um, for sure, I I have I have tended to keep that under control by having an idea of how big I want the book to be so that it's like a reasonable amount of, and, and, you know, and figuring out how long I think it'll take me to get to that. How long, you know, like what, how big does that mean? The book is how much playtesting do I think I might need? Where, where might the Kickstarter be? Like, you know, I, I start to think about it long-term and so like, I'm, this is going to be a 120 page book. So I can't do 80 pages of character options in that kind of a book. I have to just resign myself to, you know, enough to kind of fill half the book with rules and character option and options. And then the other half of the book is GM advice and setting or something, you know, whatever kind of split you're looking for. Yeah. I think like I have to realize that you are allowed to, as a game designer, you're allowed to make assumptions about your players. You're allowed to make assumptions about your audience and allow them to engage with the game and fill in gaps in good faith instead of feeling like you have to design through every single little gap. There is no, like, you don't need to make a defining rule for every interaction that a player might have in a game or a character might have in a game because you're not trying to make a real world simulator. Um, I, I struggle with that sometimes where like, I know when you have a rule for something, it makes it feel important. So you should have rules for the things that are important and integral to your game. Uh, but you, you don't need a rule for everything because you can't make a rule for everything unless you're, unless you're creating an entirely new physics (laughs) and you want to be like the, the new deity of the world, you can't do it. (laughs) Mm, I mean, tempting, but yeah, usually I just go until it feels right. Though recently I've been working on this Powered by the Apocalypse game and I had a lot of basic moves. So many that I, I kind of posted on Twitter, like how many is too many? Because I felt weird about it. And I got a lot of good answers and I managed to cut it down. Um, and I still feel like it's a lot but it fits perfectly on one page. Boom. So that's exactly how many you need. Exactly. That, like, so I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm good with this. It makes, <laughs> it makes play. It makes the play, the gameplay work in a certain way. 
Yeah. Yeah. If you give, so, somebody, if you give them a page and a half, well, now they're suddenly flipping pages to get to all that stuff. Yeah. That, that so changes like, how I, the I, game I, plays. Yeah. I, I write until I fill the page perfectly and it's perfectly formatted. <laughs> and that's the amount that I need. I don't know if that's the right answer, but that's well, that's that's speaking to like <laughs> how you want the game to be played. Like, you know, do you want to be able like I've been doing these games where like your whole character is on like two pages so yeah. that you can literally just put two pages up on your computer screen or just have two pages in front of you. Yeah. Um, do I you know, if as soon as I give you five pages of character sheet, that means mm -hmm. I've got five pages worth of stuff yep. that you need to learn how to fill in. Um, and, you know, it's a much more robust game and it's going to play differently because you're going to need, you know, you're, you're by necessity, you're designing a game that like during fights, people are going to be on their off when it's not their turn. They're going to be flipping the book, flipping pages in the book, mm -hmm. looking up all the spells and magic items. They're going to be flipping through pages of their character sheets mm -hmm. to figure out what they've got it available. And it could change. And that's a particular like, type of gameplay. If that, yeah. and there's plenty of games that do that and plenty of people yeah. that love playing that game. It hasn't been play tested and it could change, but I mean, also I, when I make games, I make them for me. I make, the, I make the games that I want to play and it's super cool if other people want to play them too. But this game is about teenagers experiencing their first emotions in the depths of space. And then they start punching and kissing each other. And you know what? That's the game that I want to play. So <laughs> that doesn't appeal to anyone else. That's fine. Appeals to me and like my one friend who also <laughs> likes teenagers kissing in space. Then we'll just it's be so the good. only two people who play this game. I'm okay with that. I mean, that's the advice that writers give to people too. Like write the book you want to read, write the thing that you want to see. Yeah. yeah. And I'm lucky enough to have like a day job that pays the bills. So I'm just going to write the games that I like and not worry about selling them. Well, you already have one other person who wants to play the teenage. Uh, oh, good. Teenage <laughs> right there, right there in the chat. Uh, Fingers crossed that I, it gets done soon. I already have basic <laughs> moves. That's really all you need. I mean, <laughs> to play blazes. So another question. Um, oh boy. What is your white whale of game design? The impossible game you would love to design? I have two answers. My first one was a game about a dragon based on um oh, what's that dragon movie where it crawls up out of the sewer and then it like terrorizes the town and it ha it has um I don't know there's this dragon movie anyway <laughs> I I I wrote this I wrote like five different versions of this game and it was I literally called it my white whale for so long <laughs> and um, I finally, it culminated in this one page RPG called hush. Um, and I don't think I've sold a single copy. Um, but it's, it's the game. It's the game that I was trying to make for like a year and a half. And I don't care that no one knows about it because it like just deeply satisfied my soul that I finally made it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's about a group of people who are trying to hide from this dragon and you can't fight it. The second that you encounter the dragon in game, the game is over, you die. Um, but it's about you, you try to stay quiet and you comfort and support each other while trying to stay quiet. And it's just like this tiny little, like a post-apocalyptic game. Um, Anyway, that was my that was my first white whale. 
Um, and now I, I have this dream of writing a game about little kids pretending to be princesses or something along that line. I would really want to write something that captures that feeling of being a child and pay, playing pretend and feeling that feeling of really believing that magic is real and that you can go to other places. And I've like started writing things like a hundred times and I've never gotten anywhere. Um, and I know I'm going to keep going back to it over and over again, and maybe it'll get done at some point, but just something about the magic, like the pure magic of childhood and like princesses and unicorns. That would be really cool. I would love to write that game. I, I love that. I, I always played pretend as a kid. I was looking yeah. up, I was trying to figure out what that movie you were talking about was. Um, but all I, the, as far as I got was the Lambton worm, which is a very similar <laughs> folk tale, which is not, I don't think what you were referencing. Uh, <laughs> I'll find, I'll find. Yeah. I want to know. <laughs> I want to know okay. what it is. Um, and uh, yeah, it, the white whale of game design for me, I want to make a, a dress up game, but TTRPG. Um, I, I want to do it so badly and I haven't been able to figure out how, how that would happen. I love like magical girls and I love dress up games, like the pretty, pretty princess game mm -hmm. and all of that. <laughs> and that would be my, my game I would design, um, that or like, a yeah, I, I think that that would be like the number one thing or getting the IP to do a Legend of Zelda TTRPG. But if I, if I could buy that IP and, and they would let me make that into a, a game, I, that would be great. But I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> um, it was Reign of Fire with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I love that movie, though. It's a great movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Chris, and in the chat, uh, an RPG where your clothes dictate the magical powers and abilities that your characters have. Yes, yeah, very much like that. Um, but I want it to be based on the colored dice that you you roll and have. I want it to be Ooh. like a, like a TCG type where you can basically buy your way into being better at this game. But but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. My white whale was die laughing, um, making a horror game where your character can die and then you can still be integral to the story without just making another character. Um, it's a great game. And that took me 10 years to make. So uh, sometimes the white whale takes a little while. Currently, and the that's white whale why, is. <laughs> that's why you have the hook for a hand and an eye patch, right? Sure. <laughs> um, currently, the white whale is. Um, I don't know what it's about, but it's a powered by the apocalypse game. Um, I would love to play in that space, but I know that doing that would require me to spend a lot more time playing them and GMing different PBTA games and really learning the ins and outs of the nuance of how moves are created and, and, and probably, you know, like spending a lot of time in development on the game too, because I, oh, I I've, had pe so. I've had people, well, I've, <laughs> I've, I've heard a lot of people say that, like, you know, one of the things about PBTA games, at least, at least the approach that some people take is that there's, there's a great deal of nuance. And so um, all those different moves and just, you know, tweaking little things about how they function and getting them play tests and seeing how they come, how they play out in real life. I'm just pretty sure I wrote my first Powered by the Apocalypse game before I'd ever played one. 
and everybody has different approaches. So I'm just saying for, for me, I would, I would be one of those people That's that fair. would want to, to dig incredibly deep and, and, I get it. and learn <laughs> deep, deep down like that. I just, and, and maybe someday I will come to grips with that and be just like, screw it. Let's just make something. Um, but there's a part of me that's like, I keep coming up with like ideas that might work as a PBTA game. And then I look at it and I'm just kind of like, oh boy, but I've got to really shift like, you know, cause it's a very different mindset of, of a game, something that I don't deal with a lot. And I just haven't made that jump yet. Um, and I think we can do one more question. That would be very cool though. So we'll see if we'll see if I get to do something with that. Um, how long do you know how to make your game? How do you know how long to make your game? <laughs> how do you know how long the game should be? How many, how many pages should it be? How do you know that? Well, there's a specific equation that every game designer knows. <laughs> and we share you don't with know each other it. when you come to the meetings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a handbook when you sign up yeah. to be a game designer. So I guess if you don't know, <laughs> I think, and, and I'm, I'll start because I, I remarked earlier about like kind of having a sense of like how big the game is going to be and, and using that as a guiding feature, uh, guiding principle for how much, you know, character option and everything you're going to put in there. And I'm just taking this from my own experience. Um, murders and acquisitions is bigger, is bigger than it needed to be. I, I bit off more than I needed to chew for my first game. So I think the first thing is like, if you're starting out is, you know, maybe something smaller that you can, is more manageable. You don't get as intimidated by. Um, if you, if you have it in you and you think you want to make a 350 page game, um, are you prepared to put that amount of time into it? And are you confident that you're not going to lose interest after two years? Because you might still be working on that game in two years. Mm -hmm. um, so, you knowing your own limitations about whether you want to go long with a game um and uh i think a lot of the rest of it is just kind of you know like what what do you want the game to do like how um and what kind of a play experience do you want it to be like if you want it to be a, an experience where the players are have a lot of options and are working a lot you know having having to flip pages a lot and everything that's going to necessitate a longer game probably if you want a game that's going to be super um like it's just improv and there's just the barest semblance of dice rolling involved. You might, your, your rules might be four whole pages um, that, you know, you know, that, that that's going to be a shorter game. Um, what else are you going to put in there besides that? Just four pages of rules and a character sheet. Um, yeah. it, it's, 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 for me, it's been kind of just like looking at all, like everything about what I think the game can be as far as like how, how in depth is, you know, do the, does the GM have to roll dice as well? Well, that means I need stat blocks for monsters and NPCs and all this other stuff. It's like, if it's mm -hmm. a player facing game, I can dedicate GM space to other things or just have a shorter GM section, which makes the book smaller. So it's like, like just like looking at all of the different aspects of how the game is going to function and figuring out um, kind of what, what you think that's going to be. And then I literally will sit down and kind of outline like how many pages I think is going to go to each thing. I'm going to have, you know, 12 pages of rules and I'm going to have four playbooks and I'm going to have this and that and the other thing. And it can, um, it can go the other way too. When I first started getting into game design, we were obsessed with making one page RPGs, even mm -hmm. um, fitting what should have been maybe a five page RPG into one page. Uh, if you just keep making the font smaller. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what ended up happening. And it didn't look good. Um, in a lot of these cases, sometimes it did, sometimes it looked fine. Um, but make sure like you want to make it precisely as long as it needs to be which is a, a trick that only you have to dabble with it for a bit 
Um, Moon okay, Punk- Gandalf. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, with Moonpunk, we our book is a six by nine size, and it's a hundred and hundred and two pages, hundred and one pages of actual text. Um, but like also, of course, like the random blank pages that are always in a book. Um, and it was you know, it's pretty small text and everything, but it's, it's the size that it needed to be to get all the playbooks in and to get the, the small amount of rules that we had, um, and explain what those rules are and provide some examples of how to do those things, as well as some, um, punk flavoring in there and, and, um, um, anti- capitalist anti-oppression, uh, uh, flavor in there too, like actual guides to direct action and things like that. As um, a punk game, you can't leave. Right, that you stuff have to have. You, I mean, <laughs> right, we wanted to make it an actual punk game. Um, exactly. So, um, but it ended up being exactly that length, and I think it works out really well because it's meant to be a game that you can pick up and play pretty quickly, and you don't want to read through more than a hundred pages of text. Not all of these pages are things that you have to read. I, I always, I look at some of these books that have come out um, that are like. 700 pages long and I ask myself why what is on there what are you doing with with all these pages is anyone going to read all that do you expect your players to read all that the people who are purchasing the game to read all of that it might just be for a different audience but like I definitely couldn't yeah, that's not the audience I personally write for. Yeah. I don't want my, like, I want to make sure that my games are accessible to people so that they can play them. Um, yeah, well, and also, I don't want to have to pay a bunch of money for a book. Yeah. It's a question of audience very much. Let's say you mm-hmm. hit it on the head, which is, um, and I've, I've gone through this in my 30 years of gaming. When I was a college student and I bought a 300-page game book and devoured it front to back because I had the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and because we were going to play, and I, I read you know, a dozen D&D books because I played mm-hmm. D&D twice a week, every single week of school for four years with the same people. Yeah. And we just played D&D to death um, because, and, and so, you know, the, you know, the, the, the companies that are putting out 600 page rule books uh, are one of two things. They are, they've, they've got an audience that is going to devour that, which is either it's an, it's a, it's a young audience with a lot of time, or it's an incredibly dedicated audience. Um, or, it's a person who just really, really wants to make that big game, even if they don't have that huge audience. And they're willing to, to, to put that time and effort in to make that game that's like, this is their baby. This is their, you know, hopefully not a fantasy heartbreaker, hopefully like the good version of the fantasy heartbreaker, because there is such a thing, <laughs> you know, the, uh, yeah, it's, it's knowing it's, it's, it, you kind of have to like, you know, examine not only what you want out of the game, but like, like let's just saying the, the audience, like what, what do you, who do you expect to play the game? Mm-hmm. People that have a lot of time. <laughs> I know for me, I have a hard time reading anything longer than like 10 pages, honestly. And that tends to be the games that I make. Um, and that usually is my attention span too. Um, and I know it'd be like, I, I'm in a better place financially now, but especially when I first started making games, um, And like a few years before that, when I was really getting into the indie game scene, I had no money. So I was downloading free games, quick starts. Um, So I would get like the very basic rule set, basic moves and playbooks. And 
now when I make Powered by the Apocalypse games, that's what I make. And then I'm done because mm-hmm. that's a Powered by the Apocalypse game for me. And I just kind of assume that like, if you're getting this game, you know how to play and GM it, um, which is also, I don't charge for my games because I recognize that I'm basically giving you a quick start and not a whole game <laughs> um, because that's, I don't know how to make the rest of that. I know how to make a playbook and basic moves. And I'm like, this is like, this is the game. Like the rest of it, read a different Power by the Apocalypse book to tell you how to GM a game, <laughs> I guess. Um, I don't know. Well, we we need we need games like that too, like that you can just pick up and you don't even need to read it ahead of time. Yeah, you can pick it up, and, and, pick it up and flip through and yeah, you and get that's, the gist of it. You get, and you can decide whether you want to play it or not. That's an audience. That's mm-hmm. an audience choice, Litza. Mm-hmm. Like you said, absolutely. It's yeah. like, you people, my games are for people that already know the rules for this game. Yeah. My games are for time. people who want to play a game after the big convention session on Saturday and they're really tired, but they still want to play a TTRPG with their friends. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a bunch of games and they all have different audiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good Strong Hands was written with internet play in mind. Yeah. Like as a GM and a player can, you can, it's a two page character sheet. You can make a character in five minutes. The GM can read the two page adventure um, yeah. set up in five minutes. If you know the rules already, you're playing in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I only, love that. and, it's, I love... and it's and it's two pages on a screen. You know, you don't have to be managing seven different browser windows and PDFs. Yeah. And, yeah. The I, easy, no I designed prep. that game for, for that. Like, like here's a page of setting a page of basic rules and playbooks. Yeah, Alex and I just had this conversation about our our new game um, that we're kickstarting soon, um, which was, hey, we gotta get a quote from the from the printer. Uh, how many pages do you think it's gonna be? One hundred and fifty? Yeah, that seems right. Yeah. <laughs> Done that. <laughs> we'll figure it out. One hundred fifty. Right. It feels good. That feels like a good number. So mm-hmm. that's that's what we will probably go with. And then when I do layout um, later, I will figure out if that's actually right. Right. <laughs> oh, hey, we got a bunch of questions. Look at that. that yeah, was we wonderful. did. Yeah, thank you, everyone who asked questions, and and uh, thank you, Litza, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Super fun. Well, where can we find your games, and what things do you want to plug for us? Well, I have a Patreon, and the most of the stuff on there is D and D stuff, and most of it's free. Um, and it is, um, baby sculling dragons and it's linked on my Twitter, which is probably the easiest way to find it. Um, my Twitter is at Litza Bronwyn. My Ichio is also Litza Bronwyn and linked through Twitter. Um, and again, most of my stuff on Ichio is free. And if you're having financial difficulty, you can always DM me for the stuff that's not free until I figure out how to put up community copies, which I haven't done yet. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I sometimes tweet uh, previews of things. I usually tweet nonsense. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just, I just like making things. Um, I'm, I'm starting a new job soon and hopefully that will reduce burnout and I can get back to designing, um, more than I have recently, which has not been a lot. And I'm excited about that. 
you can find me at Twitter at at Josco, where I tweet about games sometimes, but mostly also nonsense too. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can find my games at wannabegames.com um, or on itch or drive through RPG. Same thing, wannabe games. And uh, you can also still get in if you are listening to this right now. Uh, you can still get in on a game of Moonpunk tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time through NerdBurgerCon. And I want to plug what NerdBurgerCon is, is donating to this year, which is the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project helps LGBTQ youth uh, who are who are at risk and danger in, in, in bad situations around the country. Uh, and I, I love and believe strongly in this organization. They are doing great things. So thanks, Craig, for choosing that charity in particular. <laughs> You're yeah. welcome. Uh, and I, you can find my stuff at drivethroughrpg.com as well as nerdburgergames.com. However, for the next couple of weeks, there's a Kickstarter running for Secrets of the Vibrant Isle, um, which is a solo RPG uh, kind of fantasy setting where you're exploring an island and making friends. Um, and several of my games are available um, as add-ons with that, and they're cheap. So uh, check there first before you go anywhere else to buy a game. And uh, I think that's it, everybody. That was that was a Q&A with other people. We did it. Yeah. That's oh, awesome. <laughs> before we end, let me make sure that I'm giving credit to our theme song and closing music. That is Avel by Steph Sachs, which was available via a Creative Commons license. So thank you so much, Steph Sachs, for doing that and contributing some free stuff for me to use as well. Um, but thank you, everyone, for joining us. And we will see you back here next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.